Welcome to This Week in Photo. Bandwidth for TWIP is brought to you by CashFly at C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com. This episode of TWIP and a special insider survey for this podcast is also brought to you by the new 2011 Hyundai Equus. Discover the Hyundai Equus, the new premium luxury sedan from Hyundai, offering first-class refinement and features. Take the insider survey for this podcast at podcastinsidersurvey.com. That's podcastinsidersurvey.com. And Squarespace.com, the fast and easy way to publish a high-quality website or blog. For a free trial and 10% off your new account, go to Squarespace.com slash TWIP with the offer code TWIP. That's Squarespace.com forward slash TWIP, offer code TWIP. This week on TWIP. Iron Man body armor for your DSLR, borrowlenses.com marketing guy Josh Norum talks third-party lenses, and an interview with Zach Prez on search engine optimization for photographers. It's Saturday, December 18th, 2010, and this is Twip. Welcome back to TWIP, your weekly source of photographic inspiration. I'm your host, Frederick Van Johnson, and joining me today on the show are none other than Mr. Derek Story, Ron Brinkman, and back from the dimension in which he was hiding, Mr. Steve Simon. Hey, guys. Hello. Hello. How are you? We're going in reverse here. Steve, where have you been? You, you, I think what has it been, like nine months? You've been on the show <laughs> in 2010, like what, yeah. two times. Where, I, where have you been? I, I have not been there enough. I've been in um, Stockholm having surgery done um, to fix myself up. No, 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 no. Nice. I, I've been I've been traveling all over the place. I've been in Steve Egypt. is insane, by the way. Just <laughs> twip listeners. Steve halfway Simon through, is certified. People are like, really? Oh my god, what's wrong? No, no, no. I, I, Meanwhile, we know that it was really a sex change. So. Yeah, exactly, exactly. That's why we're we're not going video. But uh, yeah. no, I've been to Egypt. I was on a workshop there. I was in Florence. I was in Atlanta when it was like really cold boston all the big places what are you doing all these places just like surveying to buy real estate or what no 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 i've been i've been shooting you know in egypt i was uh, doing a a workshop uh, mentor series and i was helping a friend uh, do a shoot in in florence which was delicious and um, I've been doing some workshops in Atlanta and uh, Boston. So. Well, tell us about well, quickly. Tell us about these workshops you're doing. This is uh, well, sure. photo- I'm, I'm assuming they're photography workshops and not you know surgery. Yeah, they are. I mean, I do a bunch of different workshops, but I've recently hooked up with the Nikonians, and I'm I'm doing uh, some some Nikon specific uh, workshops, uh, including you know we do one on the D700 D3 series, one on the D300 D300S series, D90 D80, and then I do my my signature workshop called the Passionate Photographer. So, well, doing cool. that, this is my first go round, and uh, you know, I'll I'll be doing, I'll be doing a couple uh, in San Francisco. Hopefully, I'll I'll see Derek when I'm there at MacWorld around that you time. You will, you will indeed. Excellent. Speaking Excellent. speaking of Mr. Story, hey Derek, how are you, how are you doing, and what have you been up to? I'm doing great today. I'm doing great. Uh, I, I'm doing my, my usual thing, which is uh, been working on a lot of stuff for Macworld Magazine and uh, photography, a lot more reviews, I guess, uh, cameras and stuff right now, and getting ready for my workshop series. By the way, I like that idea of the signature workshop, Steve. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to steal that. <laughs> I like that, too. This Actually, is my signature I think I may workshop. embrace yeah. and extend that as well, Steve. Yeah, Thank boy, you. that's... <laughs> 
That's, Feel free, that's guys. Good stuff. That's gold. See y'all in court. Hey, you both. <laughs> yeah. You know, both of you guys are going to really enjoy my pick of the week. I'm just. I'm just saying. So you, okay. you will. You will enjoy it. I got a little piece of hardware in that is going to change the world in 2011. I think. So I like nice. that. That's foreshadowing. Ron Brinkman, what have you been up to? Well, I did a signature workshop earlier this week. <laughs> um, oh, you're teaching people how to write? <laughs> Ron Brinkman, bringing Brinkman back the lost, the lost yeah. art of cursive. Yeah. It's, you know, yes, all about the calligraphy. Um, I would, I've, I've been working on a whole bunch of stuff, but not a whole lot of it photography related. Although I did actually do a fun little uh, talk for Peach Pit. Press, uh, oh yeah, how'd they go? Did you webcast. have a? It was get, cool. Get a lot of Twip listeners in there. Uh, you know, I don't. I didn't. There was no good sort of feedback mechanism there, so I don't actually know. Uh, it was one of those things where I just sort of got online and put together a little slideshow. I talked about my my trip to Venezuela over the summer, and kind of a, it was a mix of sort of traveling and photography and and doing those those things together, and then the post process after it. Uh, I talked about 45 minutes or so, but I'm pretty sure it was recorded. So people can go online to Peach Pit and probably just Google my name and find it. You know, Peach Pit's the book publisher that does uh, a lot of Apple's uh, book, sort of reference books and everything. Yeah. But, uh, I, kinda, yeah, was, I refer fun. to Peach Pit as the Apple of the publishing industry. Like, it, yeah. 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 And they obviously have a very strong relationship with Apple, too. So it was, yeah. you know, it was somewhat of a, well, the second half was somewhat aperture focused, but the first half of the talk was really just kind of. Uh, thoughts on traveling with cameras and taking pictures while traveling and not so much a how-to of travel photography but more of what's it like when you're trying to be a photographer and traveling. Oh, that's cool. So that's archived, right? So people can go check yeah. it out. Yeah, so I'm pretty sure. I, we can, I'll, I'll dig up a link and we can put it on the website if people want to go look at it. Very cool. All right, guys, before we jump into the news, I want to give a quick nod to our sponsor. This episode of TWIP and a special insider survey for this podcast are both brought to you by the new 2011 Hyundai Equus, and we're polling our audience. We're, uh, the voting for the, the questions that are up there is still open, and a quick thank you to the Hyundai and the 2011 Equus for bringing us this survey. If you'd like to discover the Hyundai Equus, it's the new premium luxury sedan from Hyundai. And it offers the best in first-class refinement, featuring an iPad equipped with the owner's manual app. It's got, it's got first-class everything and advanced technology, such as a forward-view cornering camera and smart cruise control with, collision, with a collision warning system. You can learn more and take our special survey for this podcast at podcastinsidersurvey.com. Once again, that is podcastinsidersurvey.com. All right, guys, let's jump into the news. First up, uh, this is, I think this one is right up your alley, Steve Simon. This is about uh, the court upholding a photographer's copyright claim. Um, so you want to, I know you're looking at it right now. You want to take us through what the gist of it was and, and where it is? Yeah, the gist of it uh, from what I'm looking at here is that uh, uh, the Daily Mirror uh, picture group uh, in the UK um, obviously archived the images that they, they have from their staff photographers and freelance photographers, uh, but ended up um, using these in a commercial way, you know, from the archive. And I guess one of the photographers, a freelancer, um, realized that uh, some of his images were being used and, and kind of reused without his permission, and he sued them. And it looks as though um, he he won the case. Am I am I right in, in, in yeah. reading that? Yeah, I believe yeah, he did. So, and I, I'm familiar with this because I know that, um, you know, since I left 
my full-time newspaper job. I, I do freelance from time to time uh, with newspapers. And uh, these days, uh, they all want you to sign a contract. And, you know, it's negotiable, but uh, in the editorial world, uh, freelancer, free, um, newspapers are, are kind of the, the low end in terms of uh, uh, what you're going to get uh, financially from them. But at like, least... Like generally, uh, generally, you know, without revealing too much, what do what do like photojournalists that are based with a specific newspaper, what can they expect to bring down? I mean, like if, if someone's going to school and like my aspiration is to work for the New York times as a photographer, I want to be Peter Parker, you know, how much, how much money is he going to make? Well, you know, don't get me started on the whole subject (laughs) because I do know that a lot of newspapers really exploit the fact that, uh, you know, new young photographers come on, they may get uh, 50, a hundred bucks for a shot. They're, if they're going to be paid for the day, a shift, it might be, you know, the $250 range. But they have to come, you know, with their $20,000 worth of equipment and all the insurance. And, you know, it, it really is a, a difficult situation. Obviously not getting better. Uh, we know that newspapers are, are really struggling to, to find a way to continue to make money. So it's always been a little bit difficult in that regard. And even today, I mean, you're not going to get rich uh, doing uh, editorial jobs uh, for the New York Times. But that said, mostly when you do sign on, and a lot of them uh, want you to sign away your, your copyright or they won't have you work for them. And that, for me, is, is, a, is, is a deal breaker. And I encourage uh, even young photographers to try and avoid that whenever they can. But with this gentleman here, um, at least uh, uh, the court aired in the UK on the side of the, the freelancer because... They say that they he ended up winning the case, and often when you sign a contract uh, to do work for for newspapers and magazines, usually it's stipulated that the images will would also be used, um, you know, in their archive, and they they do have electronic rights to to whatever whatever you know the specific contract is. So obviously he didn't sign anything, and the and the court kind of went on his side. Yeah, but Steve. You you very artfully avoided the answering of my question, which was <laughs> how much money can someone expect to make if they want to be a newspaper-based photojournalist? Yeah, I mean, like, give me a range. Again, it doesn't have to be exactly. Yeah, is no, it like I, I forty thousand, a hundred thousand? What? Oh, you know, in in pay. Well, you know, yeah, for a starting photographer, you don't. You just have to go online and see what you know beginning journalists make in small markets, and it's. Uh, it's barely above minimum wage, but oh, no. it's called paying your dues. But obviously, if you're a staff photographer, um, you know, at some of the major newspapers, you know, with with your equipment allowance and and vehicle and all the other goodies, I mean, you can make a, a decent living. Yeah, you know, probably you know in the hundred thousand dollar range, maybe even more than that. Yeah. But it's uh, so slightly it's, above the poverty line in New York City, then. <laughs> pretty much, pretty much. It's uh, it's a labor of love. You don't go in it for the money. I think we know that. Actually, yeah. we don't go into photography at all for the money. There's a few lucky people that that do well, and uh, but even they, like Annie Leibovitz, have money problems. Yeah. Oh. Now, Derek, Derek's story. <laughs> leave Annie yeah. alone. Leave Annie alone. <laughs> Derek, have you ever had any problems with copyright on any of your images? Uh, I don't have many problems, but I, I do agree with Steve. And the way that I go and the way that I recommend is uh, retain copyright and negotiate uh, usage. And, uh, you know, so even if even if you say, yes, you can use it uh, for, you know, this assignment. And, yes, you have electronic, you know, rights usages in the future, which is giving away a lot right there. But you still retain copyright. Then, um, then you still are able to use those images, also, you know. And up the road, that could be very important. So, 
totally agree. Hang on to copyright. Uh, if you're going to be liberal anyway, uh, let it be on the on the usage uh, yeah. part of the negotiation. But not to go too far off the rails, but uh, Ron Brinkman, you know, when you're when you're traveling around and you know having fun, taking pictures, doing all that fun stuff, and you're you're you may take some stunning image of a waterfall with someone standing in front of it. Do you take extra special care to make sure you get the rights from that person in order to use that image? Or are you just like, Hey, this is just going in aperture and you know, I'm never going to see it again. Yeah. You know, I, I mean, I'm, I'm certainly the first to say that I am a hobbyist photographer and that's sort of the, the voice I, I want to bring to the show, I guess. And so for me, I'm never really looking for, uh, monetizing everything. You know, I, I, I have have photos sold. I think I told this story a while back about ending up getting photos published in Playboy, uh, photos of dead fish, but it sounds good. Uh, but, you know, it was one of those things where they saw my work online and they had an article that it was appropriate for and contacted me. Uh, you know, and so from that perspective, there was something coming back from the the my practice of just sort of putting it out there. But, you know, I think it's a very different kind of thing. And if I was doing, you know, if I look at this from the perspective of if I was a professional and, and or this was related to some other thing that I do professionally, yeah, I think you just need to be aware of the contracts. I think the, the, this particular situation is interesting because it was sort of, there was not a written contract, and so the court kind of made a decision that there was some sort of implied uh, contract related to things like copyright and photos. And again, this was a UK court, so I'm not sure it necessarily applies over here. Uh, and the bottom line is really everybody just kind of needs to be aware of their own uh, contracts whenever they're doing this kind of stuff. Yeah, yeah it, I'll just add one thing, and that is anyone can register their copyright. I mean, the fact is, when you take a picture, you automatically own the copyright of the image that you took. And obviously, you want to keep it in your metadata. You want to um, build it into to the files. Many cameras will allow you to plug in your copyright information you know, as you shoot, which is great. But if you want to actually win money, you need to register the copyright for that series of photos. And it's easy to do. You can do it automatically. You can do it online, I'm, I'm trying to say. Uh, it costs 35 bucks. You can do a whole series of photos. And a lot of professionals work that into their workflow in the chance that when someone does steal an image, um, then they can get money. If you, if you own the copyright but you never registered it in the United States... Um, you're not going to get any monetary um, gain from it. And, you know, we, we've talked about this on the show before, so I don't want to belabor it too much. But the one of the things we talked about is, yeah, you can if you're driving down the street and, you know, some image that you posted on Flickr shows up on a billboard as you're driving by, you're like, hey, I shot that, you know. What then? You know, especially if you're just barely scraping by in New York City making a hundred K, right? <laughs> you know, and you see your image on a billboard, do you go hire a lawyer at a thousand dollars an hour to help you litigate and, you know, make money? And if you do do that, what how much can you get for that? What's the damages and would that cover your legal fees? Or you just you know You know, if you've registered that image that you see in the billboard, um any any lawyer would would take the case because you would win um, whatever the um, monetary value would be for an advertising image on a billboard, which would be considerable, as well as any legal fees because it's a slam dunk when you've registered the copyright and someone has infringed, um, you're good. You're you're gonna you're gonna make money. Any lawyer would be happy to take it. Um, if you see the image and you didn't register it. I would still obviously uh, contact a lawyer, explain the situation, and depending on the situation, uh, 
the, the lawyer would probably take it. But, you know, it's very, very unlikely that's going to happen because, you know, the people in the business understand and they're very careful. Be, you know, they've, they've slipped up and made mistakes. But, you know, the big mistakes, the big companies, they're not going to um, use an unreleased uh, photo, generally speaking. So usually the infringements are, are kind of minor ones. And, you know, it's hard to know if, if it's worth it. So. Yeah, I know if you're... You know, the opposite end of the spectrum, if you're a Scott Bourne and you have like a, you know, a call center full of lawyers that can <laughs> litigate for you, that's something different. It almost becomes a business model where you hope people, <laughs> people steal your images so you can find them and litigate against them, yeah. right? I've heard, I've heard that, um, you know, companies like Getty, the big stock agencies today, have software that sort of trolls the web looking for infringement and 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 the software apparently pays pays for itself because they do find a lot of these things. Wow, wow! So it's interesting. All right, go ahead, go ahead, Derek. What one thing? Just wanted to add uh, to what Steve said is that uh, make sure though that you do have your your name and your copyright in the metadata. So if they want to find you, if they find an image that they like, they want to find you, uh, they can. And uh, you know that's that that can turn out to be a big deal. Well, how do you, how do you do that, Derek? Just just for folks that are wondering. There's uh, a couple different ways. Uh, for instance, the 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 new 60D that I was talking about uh, now, Canon allows you to actually enter that information just via the camera's menu system, oh, cool. and uh, puts it on every image. And that's a trend that we're going to continue to see. And then all the photo software, Aperture, Lightroom, uh, Photoshop, uh, it all allows you to enter that information in the metadata too. So you know you can do it uh, at any any point along the road, but it's a really good practice because sometimes uh, images are orphaned, what we call orphaned. Someone finds them out there and they want to use them and they can't track them down. Yeah, you know what I I've started doing, that. Steve. I think this was this was a tip that I got from you, but I just started. Um, I just started. What do you call it? changing the file name system inside of my Nikon cameras. So instead of DSC, you know, whatever the number is, um, it is now FVJ, whatever the number is. So, <laughs> so. Yeah, no, that, that, that totally makes sense too. And, and most cameras will allow it. And, you know, the, the, the Nikons in the, in the, in the um, wrench menu, you can enter your copyright. And as Derek said, um, you may even want to enter um, an email address or yes. a phone number. Yeah, absolutely. So, because email. most people... A lot of the infringements aren't necessarily, um, uh, you know, they, they happen because maybe they couldn't try, they couldn't contact someone. Exactly. So. Yeah. All right. It looks like we lost Ron Brinkman. I'm going to try to bring him back in. Skype did not like what he had to say. So let's see. <laughs> if we can get him back on the line here. Ron Brinkman. Yeah. There he is. <laughs> what did you do? You, you said something wrong and Skype didn't like you. No, it wasn't Skype. It was my computer. It crashed. Oh, there you go. Well, we were, we were just wrapping up the, the discussion on the, um, on the photographer rights infringement and all that stuff. We're going to move on to this next story that I know, Derek, Derek you have a, uh, you've been playing around with a new Olympus E5. I have. And uh, I'm, I'm anxious to hear what you think about that thing. Yeah, I, I wanted to talk about this. I'm, I'm actually working on a review for Macworld about it, and I've had the camera for a bit now. And uh, the main reason I wanted to bring it up is because uh, you know we spend so much time talking about uh, Nikon and Canon, and more these days uh, also about Sony because you know they've really kind of moved into the DSLR space in a big way. But uh, Olympus is actually doing some some pretty good stuff, and especially people who already have Olympus Glass. Uh, the new E5 uh, just came out, and it's their their flagship 
uh, DSLR. It's their top-of-the-line model. It runs, I think, street price on it is right around $1,500, $1,600 right now. Uh, It's new, so uh, street price is probably going to be a little bit higher than it will be uh, a few months up the road. Uh, And what's interesting about it is that it's, it's, uh, it's, it's an interesting camera in the sense that it's very well built. It's very rugged. I mean, you know, it's one of those cameras that when you pick it up, it feels solid. Uh, it has the the uh, swing out LCD, and uh, they did up the the pixel count on the LCD. Sometimes Olympus is a little cheap on the, and I don't mean that in a as badly as it sounds, but sometimes their pixel counts around you know two hundred thousand, four hundred thousand, and they're up around uh, nine hundred thousand on this uh, swing out LCD. So it's a really nice looking LCD screen. But they have this thing where uh, they limit the the pixels on the sensor. It's a four-thirds sensor to uh, 12 million. So it's a 12-megapixel camera. And some folks like that, and some folks don't. Some folks want uh, more resolution. But uh, they have said that they feel that 12 megapixels is all that uh, most photographers need. And <laughs> by golly, so far they're uh, they're sticking to that. Yeah. Yeah, um, they did add uh, a, a movie mode to this, which is something that they, I think, had been a little slow moving into that uh, space on their DSLRs. They do great with it on the on the micro four-thirds, like the pens. And so uh, it shoots, uh, shoots both HD and SD movies. The HD stuff, by the way, is at 16 by 9, and they also put uh, an external mic jack on it, which I always appreciate when folks do that and I've tested it and uh, uh the sound is is pretty decent. Now is they, that is the sound that's coming into that I mean like it, of course it's probably it's dependent on the mic that you plug into it, right? It is. It is, is, it, is it sound ha- acceptable to just go with that audio or cuz the the best practice for at least people trying to get serious results out of video out of you know SLRs and these kind of cameras is to record it separately on something like a Zoom H4n or something. Is it, it does it replace that or should they still go with best best practices well i think it depends on what your need is right for uh for instance if you're doing interview stuff uh i think that you know using lavalier mic plugged into the camera uh it it works pretty well the sound is good Mm -hmm. uh if if you're going to go up to that next level then uh, i would i would record the audio separately especially if 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 there's high fidelity involved you know if you really want to get you know uh, like music in the background things like that you know but i will say uh that if if i'm going to be going to that level uh, i'm probably not using this camera anyway i'm probably using my 5d mark ii right so uh and i will also say that i this camera is one I tested coming off the the 60D, the Canon 60D, and the audio. I use the same mic on both of them, and I did like the audio on the 60D better using the lavalier mic than the audio that came out of uh, this. What was uh, what was the difference? Does it sound like audio quality wise? What it yeah, uh, a cleaner, crisper. Uh, y- you know, and on the 60D, you have more controls for for gain. Mm-hmm. Which is always really nice, where you can actually set the gain level that you know at what level you want. So, for instance, like for, I have kind of a, a boomy voice on a mic, uh, but if I was uh, if I 
had someone that had like a more quiet voice, a female with a more quiet voice, then I could up the gain for her and move it down for me. Uh, had those sort of controls, which in the end also equal better better audio. Yeah. So uh, the the thing that I will say though, uh, I shot I shot with the E5. The last shoot that I did with it was inside a gym. Uh, shooting sports, and I, I pushed the ISO up to uh, 3200. I shot at 1600 and 3200. And I will say that uh, I think Olympus has made some very strong strides in that area, and, and that now you can also shoot uh, high ISO uh, with, uh, for sure with the e- E5 and probably uh, subsequent DSLRs that, that we see from them. The, I was pretty happy with the with the noise control and the color fidelity was also you know quite good at the higher ISOs. So, are you gonna? Is this a camera that you think you will buy and and keep permanently, or or what do you think? Well, I I do have some uh, Olympus four thirds lenses that I like. There's one lens that I wish I had. Oh God, <laughs> I, I <laughs> they have it's a Christmas, a, a, Derek. It's Christmas. Oh, you in a good way. They have like a, a 150 uh, f2.8, I believe, or f2. I think it's a 150 f2 that I got to borrow when I shot. Um, uh, sometimes I shoot uh, the women's uh, tennis circuit, uh, the pro circuit, and I got to borrow it for that. So on a four-thirds camera, that doubles, right? So it's a right. 300 like 300 f2. f2. Nice. Oh, God, in this beautiful sharp lens. So nice. if, if I... If I had that lens, then um, I for sure would would uh, consider buying uh, this this body right now. Most of the lenses I have are are zooms in in the mid level. So um, for me, uh, you know, when in doubt, I'm I'm still going to pick up my 5D Mark II or my 60D. Yeah. But I don't have a big investment in glass. I do think though, if you do have Olympus glass right now, or you like shooting Olympus, that I I would definitely look at this camera. What are we so, looking at price wise? Uh, I think a probably street price is going to be around fifteen hundred. Okay. So hey, Derek, yeah, I, I got a question for you. Since since yeah. you're you know shooting uh, on some of the four third stuff, because um, I'm really seriously considering getting some sort of a probably a micro four thirds, you know, mm-hmm. mirrorless kind of setup, and just just to make sure. So any of the the four thirds glass will go on micro four thirds as well as regular four thirds cameras, right? With an adapter. It, it does take an adapter. Okay. It does take an adapter. Uh, but the quality is is good, and uh, I've definitely tested the adapter since I have the. the four- so, do you need the adapter to go both ways? I mean, do you need the adapter to put uh, put it on the micro four thirds or on the? I don't think you can go the other way. So I don't think you can take your micro four thirds lenses and put them on the four thirds body. Or I haven't tried that anyway. Okay. Uh, and it it would look kind of it would also be kind of an odd looking <laughs> scenario. Yeah, because- very small. Yeah, they're they're small, but you can go uh, with your four thirds glass. You can definitely put them on the micro four thirds with uh, a okay. with adapt, and, and it's an it's, it's just an adapter basically that has the electrical contacts and you know everything that you need. Right. It's not there's no optical no path uh-uh. in there. It's just okay. Interesting. Yeah, and I think there's uh you know also they want to get the spacing just right uh, between mm. the sensor and the back of the lens. Yeah. Yeah. But uh, of course, you know, I'm a, as you know from listening before. I'm a huge fan of the the micro four third stuff. I I love. Yeah, it. I, I just you know, for me, having a smaller but really good quality interchangeable lens camera is just looking more and more attractive. 
And the thing I've noticed about it, if you don't have a press pass, you know, because I, I only have press pass half the time. You know, a mm-hmm. lot of times I go do stuff just as a regular guy. Uh, I can get those Micro Four Thirds cameras through security at sporting events really easily, and mm-hmm. uh, they don't bother me at all. And I have pretty good reach with them and, and get great shots all the time. Cool. Yeah. Hmm. So one of the other things that I wanted to chat about on the show, guys, was a couple of weeks ago, Derek, I think you were on this show, when we were talking about third-party lenses. Derek, you remember yes, that? Yes. yes. Uh, yeah, you said some. You were you made the, the blind date <laughs> reference or something. <laughs> what I say? They're like the lenses that you don't want to bring home to mom? Something like that, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so... And specifically for everybody that didn't, you know, specifically talking about the third third party, you know, non non Canon, non Nikon glass, uh, yes. and that there is a bit of a stigma uh, attached to them sometimes. Yes, a stigma, a stigma with a oh, T. Stigma. Sorry. Yeah. So, you know, I, I sometimes I forget how far and wide this show reaches and how people actually listen to it. So. I got a call from Sigma Corporation of America. <laughs> they they wanted to know. Oh, let me read the paragraph from the letter that they sent over. And they, by the way, they sent three beautiful lenses over for me to test, which of course I'm going to send back after I'm done. But here's here's the uh, paragraph. It says, "Dear Frederick, we are pleased to send a selection of our most popular, best performing lenses. Thanks for agreeing to spend some time with them. I know you will be pleasantly surprised. So much so that you will no longer consider Sigma to be the blind date in the photo industry. <laughs> so, <laughs> uh, you know, and they sent these beautiful lenses. So they sent over an eighty-five one four. They sent over a twenty-four to seventy-two eight, and a uh, seventeen to fifty uh, two eight. So I'm going to play around with these and post my results on the blog. So Derek, um, I know you've had the, I'm not even going to say, I'm not going to lead the witness. What has your experience been with Sigma? Uh, both, uh, good and bad. And the good has been more recent and the bad has been more in the past. Uh, I have, uh, I have one of their lenses, the 50, uh, one four, because I, I just never really liked the Canon, Fifty one four because you couldn't shoot at one four with it. It was it wasn't good until uh, f two, and they go, okay, well, <laughs> why have an f four uh, one four lens then? Yeah. So uh, I gave this the Sigma uh, a shot, and I actually used it in um, Beijing uh, when I, I was doing uh, the Olympic work there for some of my existing light uh, work and stuff. And I've had a very good experience with it. I I like that lens a lot, and it has really great drop off when you shoot at f one four. Really, uh, you know how lenses have characters, and that that lens has a nice, uh, nice character. So my my current experience has been good. In the past, I had some of their zooms that, uh, quite honestly, just stopped working, mm. and uh, that was a bummer. Well, I'll tell you that you know so far I haven't even taken the back cap off of these lenses yet and put them on a body. But the out of box experience, they sent over brand new lenses, so the 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 out of box experience has been. I'd say at least as good as, if not better than the experience you get from Nikon. I mean, they came same kind of box, you know, packed very well in the sort of cushion zipper open case, you know, all that stuff. And these lenses are, I mean, they're substantial. These aren't, they don't feel like the lenses that are, you know, like chintzy lenses. They feel really, really real, you know, and expensive. So 
we'll see we'll see if that translates to high quality imagery i'm gonna i'm gonna do some tests with with nikon glass and do the same shot with these lenses and see if there's an appreciable difference but one thing i can't test of course is um longevity you know like if these lenses if you take it into on a brinkman trip somewhere will it make it back (laughs) (laughs) so i can't test that. for what it's worth i've taken my my 30 millimeter uh sigma on on the brinkman trips and it's done just fine so yeah i think i said that whatever that episode was that i think it's it's an okay lens i'm not completely in love with it primarily because it's just a little bit slower focusing than say for instance my 51.4 yeah uh and and it's interesting to me derek that you know you you like the 51.4 from sigma i should actually try that out i mean I, i i definitely understand your concerns about it being a little bit uh soft at 1.4 i guess part of that is sort of for me balanced out by the fact that most of the softness is getting off the center and if you're shooting at 1.4 you kind of have to choose you know most of the time i'm shooting a portrait and so it's the center that's in focus and everything's already out of focus anyway right Uh, but i I get what you're saying well yeah and we're talking about the canon lens on on that right not the the sigma yeah you know one area that i i recommend uh the sigma fair amount is for specialty lenses like uh their macro uh Mm -hmm. their macro lenses which Mm -hmm. run about half uh from the canon and nikons and uh, i've had a few people buy them and use them and 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 like them and and save a fair amount of money so So, yeah and also that that eight speaking of specialty that eight millimeter uh sigma is really a pretty awesome lens it's it's, yeah it's too bad they didn't send you that one frederick because it's a yeah we'd all be over at frederick's house (laughs) (laughs) well maybe you know depending on how this test goes maybe they'll send that over so we'll see steve steve i was gonna ask you you have you shot with these and you're you're you know you i know you shoot with a lot of nikon stuff and you're you're you are sponsored by Nikon, right? So I don't know if you're even allowed to shoot with this stuff. Is that true? No, I, I well, you know, to be honest, I, I'm a bit of a Nikon snob. I, I tend to, my past experience has been, you know, when I've deviated from the camera manufacturer Nikon lenses, I've, I've often been disappointed. But I also understand that, uh, you know, the prices uh, can be substantially different and could mean the difference between, you know, having a lens or not having a lens. And, and, and I hear great things, and, and, and I'm not, a, you know, against it. Just for me, I mean, I'm in this for the long haul, I'm professional, so I want to, you know, get the, the, the best stuff I possibly can. And, and you know, you're not going to go wrong, um, you know, when you're an Nikon shooter, buying the Nikon lenses if yeah. you could uh, afford them. But, you know, I mean, Sigma does make, I remember uh, Scott Bourne, doesn't he have like a 300 to 800 and it costs like a $2 million or something? It's very expensive. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Scott, I think Scott has everything known to man. <laughs> over there. I don't know. So, uh, you know, just to get a contrasting opinion, um, a friend of mine, Josh Norum, he's the marketing guy over at borrowlenses.com. He is, I'm looking and I see him on Skype and he said, I told him I might give him a call during the recording of this show. So let's hold our breath and see if he will answer. I'm going to see if I can wow. add, him, add him to this it's, conversation. It's always exciting when you call someone out of the blue <laughs> like this. Wow. No, I feel like I'm on old David Letterman show here. It's like live radio. <laughs> Josh Norum, are you there? I am here. All Thank right. you very much. You're, you're welcome. Hey, you're on the line. We're recording live, by the way, so anything you say will be recorded. Um, you're on with Steve Simon, Derek Story, Ron Brinkman, and myself. So, Awesome. Hey, guys. Hello. Hey, Josh. Hey, we're, we're talking about Sigma, um, and I was just letting them know that you know, after the – you and I spoke about this, but Sigma sent me over some lenses to play around with after that show I did about third-party lenses kind of not being as good as manufacturer lenses. So we thought we'd bring you into this show 
to give us your opinion since you are kind of at the nexus of lenses coming and going and the 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 center of wear and tear on lenses with people from all ilks playing with these lenses and send them back to you so what's your thoughts on let's just start from a high level like third party lenses in general do they perform as well under extreme conditions like lending them out to people as manufacturer lenses uh, well, it, I mean, on a higher level, it sort of varies on a lens-by-lens lens basis. But in general, the the lenses from Nikon and Canon cost significantly more than the lenses from Tamron, Tokina, and Sigma. And there's a reason. I mean, the, the typical reason for that is, is mainly just the build quality and reliability. They tend to be more more reliable and have a better build quality. I mean, if you look at the Nikon 2470 and compare it to a comparable lens from Tamron, it costs four times as much. You know, and that's, that's not just because of some small little difference. It's a pretty major difference in terms of the size, the weight, how reliable it's going to be, how long it's going to last, all those factors. Yeah. And I'm looking, you know, I was talking before we dialed you in, I'm looking at these Sigma lenses that I have. And they, you know, of course, I was saying I can't, I'm going to test these over the next couple of days. But the one thing I can't test is how they stand up to you know, over time, you know, cause that's, that's the true test, right? If you're, you, you have it for five years and you know, it's still as good or, or, you know, close to as good as the day you bought it. But looking at it right now in the out of box experience, this feels comparable to Nikon glass. I mean, it's heavy, it's strong, it feels substantial, it feels tight, it feels precision, you know, I mean, and this is Sigma. What's your, what's your experience with these, with Sigma lenses? Is that in line or congruent? Sigma makes some really good lenses, and I actually used to I used to personally own um, a couple of Sigma lenses as well before I started working for Borrow Lenses. Um, they they uh, they do make really good lenses. Um, however, they do have an issue. They do have issues with just overall reliability. Um, we find that the the Nikon and Canon lenses they're they're usually pretty good for quite some time. Like you don't you don't really have question marks in your head about whether or not these these L lenses or the Nikon, uh, you know, gold band lenses are going to have issues. Um, they're pretty reliable. But the Sigma stuff, when it works, it's great. But uh, the problem we have is that it's just, it'll just it'll just stop working. We have autofocus issues. Um, that's mainly mainly what it comes down to is autofocus issues. And the problem that causes for us is, um, you know, even if it's a problem that relating to Sigma's build quality, when we send that lens to a customer, they get they were they are not going to be very happy with us. So we try to minimize that whenever <laughs> whenever possible. But yeah, yeah we so, do, we go ahead, go ahead, Josh. Quick question for you. I mean, you're you're in this very unique position of, uh, like Frederick said, sort of being a, seeing more lenses come through your shop than really anybody else is likely to do. Uh, do you do you keep? A, I assume you, for purely business reasons, you keep a database of sort of product lifespan for each individual lens and uh, sort of uh, rental hours on it re- related to when you have to replace it and all that kind of stuff. Is that something that you've ever considered making publish, making public, publishing a blog about it, something like that? Yeah, it's very possible. We 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 keep records on these things, and we have uh, every lens has kind of a um, like a you know how in high school you they have like your file. Basically, we have that for every every lens. We have you know when we bought it, you know, or all the orders it's been attached to, the conditions it's been in. It's like a big long log. Right. So yeah, we it would be um, it's certainly possible for us to do that. Um, it would just be a matter of kind of sort of collecting all the evidence and uh, you know in uh, running it through. Kind of a uh, just an evaluation to see you know where the numbers stand, but sure, that's definitely something we could do. For sure. I think that would be I think that'd be fascinating if and and extremely valuable to the the photographic community. Something where you, know, you really just had on a per lens basis, kind of what's what's your 
aggregate data for how reliable any given lens is uh, from a given manufacturer. Yeah, I would uh, love to see that data, you know, just like a grid of these lenses and kind of the the mean time between failure, you know. Yeah, you know, because right. that's the thing that, I mean, there, you know, there's plenty of really great resources out there for evaluating uh, a lens's kind of basic qualities in terms of how it, you know, I always think of DP Review, and they do these exhaustive tests for, yeah. uh, you know, what's the, the fall-off like and what's the different uh, quality at different focusing distances and different apertures and all that kind of stuff. But what we don't have anywhere that I know of is you know, what's that over time quality mapping. So I, I, you know, I would certainly strongly encourage you to provide that. I think just it would be a great resource for us, but it would also be kind of like a, a, a nice traffic draw for you, I would suspect. Yeah. You know, it seems like, you know, I was going to, sorry, Steve, hang on one second. I was, I was going to ask Josh, the, there's, there's kind of a, a split here, right? So it's, do I wait and spend the money and get a Nikon or a Canon manufactured lens or do I, you know, I want to take, I'm a photographer, you know, being devil's advocate for the people who might, might not be able to spend four times as much for a lens. Do I wait or do I, do I buy it now and get, get a lower priced, um, third party glass? I mean, you know, where's that, you know, knowing that, okay, because Josh was on this week in photo and he said this lens may fail faster than a manufacturer lens. But uh, on the other hand, I want to take some photos right now. So what what do they do? I mean, is it? I know Josh, you're probably going to say rent, but you know, guys, what what would you do, Derek? Should they buy it now and get the cheaper lens, or should they just save money and get the better lens, or not say? Well, let's not say better. Get the other lens. I think it depends on on the lens, right? Uh, I mean, I have core lenses that are part of my the work, my go to lenses that we call. It. I want those to be manufactured lenses, right? My seventy to two hundred f two eight. I want that to be a Canon lens. Uh, my twenty four to one hundred five. You know, I have some of those. Those are just my bread and butter lenses that I trust. But uh, for lenses that when I'm going, let's say I want a macro lens. Well, I'm not a macro shooter, but sometimes I want that lens. Maybe that would be a, a, a time when I, then I would try the, the Sigma lens or the Tamron lens uh, that, are, that are good. I'm not going to be using them as hard. So it, it, let's say they, they, under hard use, they fail under five years. Uh, but I'm not going to be using it that much. So it probably will never, you know, the fail rate would be less for me. So, I mean, that's the way I would look at it. Steve, what were you going to say? Well, I was just going to say that, uh, you know, in the film days, uh, you look at your, your system as being, uh, you know, a couple of bodies and a bunch of interchangeable lenses. But in the digital realm these days, I kind of look at it, and I think, you know, manufacturers like Nikon do as well, that it's really um, kind of the lens that counts and, and they're interchangeable cameras because the cameras are changing so quickly. When you invest in a lens, uh, you're going to have it, likely, you know, your entire photographic life if you take care of it. And that's why, you know, you're, you're not going to um, be disappointed if you, you know, wait for, um, you know, the more ex- if you invest in the more expensive glass. Uh, you do get what you pay for, as Josh was saying. There's a reason why, you know, the prices are, are a little bit different. Yeah. But, uh, you know, I understand it, it kind of, you know, Derek also hit it right on the mark. You know, for someone who uh, is, is professional, obviously, the glass will make a difference, and you'll see it. You know, do you buy, um, you know, Nikon makes a 70-200-2.8 beautiful lens. Uh, the new version is fantastic, you know, and that's about two grand. But they also make a 200-millimeter f2 lens, you know, less practical because it doesn't zoom. It's, it's maybe twice as big. And, 
it's like $6,000 for the new version. So it's $4,000 for a lens that's kind of less versatile, double the weight. Um, why are you going to spend that for one stop? Well, there's a reason professionals do, and that is you're going to get a, a real tangible look that with that lens wide open that you can't get any other way. So, um, you know, I guess, I, guess, I guess you really have to consider, you know, what your, your end goal is as well. And yeah. lastly, I'll just say that recently, you know, at a workshop I had a couple of prints done up big, and they were shot from the iPhone, and they looked fantastic. So <laughs> there's, there's this, this real sort of scrutiny over lenses and pixel peeping, but in the end, uh, it's really not as important as people kind of make it out to be. You know, and I'm looking, I'm looking while you were talking, I looked up the pricing on this 8514 Sigma, and it's going for just about 900 bucks. And I looked up the, the comparable Nikon version of this lens, and it's 1700 bucks. So, and it's almost a two for one deal, you know, for, so I don't know. You could get, you could go Nikon and, have I would say you know have a peace of mind of knowing that you got it from the same place your body came from, or maybe buy two lenses. I don't know. So well, yeah, it's well, a toss on, on, on your core lenses, uh, I think we all agree that you want to go brand. Yeah. And, and, no, I agree. Think, I agree. They kind of go from there. Yep. I totally agree. Cool, Ron. You have anything to chime in before we move on? Nope. Nope. <laughs> All right. Uh, there's a there's a quick story I wanted to touch on in here, and no, I don't want to spend too much time on it. But there is a story um, from I think it came to us from Petapixel, and they're basically talking about camera armor for your DSLR, kind of like protecting your protecting your camera like you protect your cell phone. You know, it's all the rage for iPhone users buying these cases. Should you be buying protective cases for your camera, Ron? Are you gonna Are you gonna put a sleeve on your camera? <laughs> uh, I I am not. I mean, it's an interesting idea, and it's a good point that you know why Why don't we put these little condoms on our uh, cameras like we do on our iPhones? I don't put one on my iPhone either, though. So, uh, you know, it's. I, I think it's a valid service. I think some people would use it. I think being careful with your gear is the more important part of thing. Yeah. So I don't know. Uh, right. I'm not going to get one. It looks pretty dorky too. All right, before <laughs> before we continue, I want to I want to let Josh go. I know he's got some stuff to do. So, Josh, thanks for thanks for letting us interrupt your day. I know you're at, you're actually working today and shipping out lenses and all that, right? Yeah, I'm actually here at the office. We're open on on Saturday, but uh, I'm a big fan of the show. I, I uh, I'm really happy to be on here, and uh, thanks for having me, Frederick. Cool. You're welcome. Where so just just borrowlenses.com is where the the world of lenses are for people to rent, right? Yeah, borrowlenses.com, and also if you check us out on Twitter at borrowlenses and Facebook, where we basically have been announcing a ton of specials and exclusive deals for the holidays. So as an example right now, if you – well, wait, when is the show going to be published? This will be – this will go out Tuesday. Tuesday. If you rent between now and the end of the year for 10 days, we're throwing, throwing in a free week rental. Hmm. So and this is all coming out over uh, Twitter and Facebook. So do check us out. Oh, cool. All right. Thanks, Josh. We appreciate it. Thanks, guys. All right. Take care. All right, so a body armor. Derek, are you going to, like, as, as Ron so eloquently put it, are you going to put a condom on your DSLR? <laughs> <laughs> eloquently? Um. <laughs> yeah, those two words, Brinkman and eloquent, doesn't go together. <laughs> I think it was the words condom and eloquent that didn't go together, Frederick. <laughs> I think it was. Uh, you know, it depends. Actually, uh, in the U.S., uh, camera armor is a... Uh, part of uh, low pro now 
So I, I've actually seen these things and, and played around with them. And um, I think for the you know the shooters that really need it, like for instance, if you're if you're shooting while you know cross country skiing and doing all this sort of stuff, uh, I you know they 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 love it. They they really do like it. For everyday use, um, I think that I like the feel. I like the way my camera feels in my hands. I love. I mean, you know, they they spend a lot of time designing the, the camera so it feels good in my hands, and yeah. I like that feel. And I I don't like the way it feels when it's you know encased in this this rubbery sort of stuff. And um, and I I sort of agree. I don't really like the way it looks either. However, the one thing that it does do, if you don't want people to see if you're shooting Canon, Nikon, Olympus, whatever, it does obscure all the nameplates and all that sort of stuff. And it just sort of looks like this, um, you know, military thing, you nice. know. So, yeah. But uh, for everyday use, I, I don't think so. All right, guys. Before we move on, I want to give a nod to another one of our sponsors. We're brought to, also brought to you by Squarespace.com. They're the fast and easy way to publish a high-quality website or blog. And as we've been saying, the Squarespace.com in 2010 announced this new feature called Social Widgets. Now you have a new Twitter widget that allows you to build your website and add multiple accounts and filter the tweets by keyword, customize the look and feel to match your design, and kind of have dynamic content streaming into your site from whomever's public Twitter feed you want, uh, including your own. They've also got a native Flickr widget that allows you to add multiple accounts and have varied layouts. So basically, use Flickr as your CMS back end for importing photos into your gallery on your website. And then most sites today have RSS feeds. And if you want to pull in data from someone's RSS feed into your site, you can do so with their native RSS widget. So um, if you would like to check out some other sites that were created by Squarespace, head over to squarespace.com forward slash examples. You can see what some other folks are doing uh, with, the, with the online software. And if you'd like to get a free trial, you can head over to squarespace.com forward slash twip. You don't need a credit card. You can try it out, build it your site. And if you decide you'd like to keep that site, you can uh, get 10% off for six months when you enter the offer code TWIP at squarespace.com forward slash twip. All right, guys. The last story in the news that I wanted to check, I wanted to check in with you guys on is um, it's a rumor. So, and you guys are all cannon shooters, except for Mister New Yorker over there, Steve. Um, but there's rumors of a 5D Mark III and a 1D Mark IV replacement. True, false, obvious. <laughs> Of course Absolutely they're coming. True. Of course they're coming. You know, it's the next increment, and so we can we can all uh, assume that of course they're gonna they're not gonna stop making cameras. So they're these are coming. But what 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 are we gonna see in these? What what are the features that need to be revealed that aren't in these current bodies, Derek? On the one D Mark IV, I'm not in the loop on this, Frederick. I I have to say I just don't know. I mean, I think the the area where where can if I were Canon, what I would do is, man, I would make sure that that focusing was good and hot and, and competed with uh, what Nikon cameras can do. Yep. That's, what, that's what I would do. Yep, I agree. So focusing from Derek, Ron Brinkman, what, what needs to be in these next crop of cameras? Um, I, you know, I, I think it's just going to be incremental increases. I think Nikon is uh, perceived to have a, an advantage in a couple of specific areas. The focusing issues on some of these Canon cameras are less than satisfactory sometimes. Uh, and the low light capabilities of the highest end Nikons, I think, are still brand leaders. 
So uh, they can they can focus better and they can see better. Is that what you're saying? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Aside from that, the cannons are finished. <laughs> I knew, Steve, I was setting that up for you. It was T-ball right there. <laughs> You don't need to focus and you don't need to see in the dark. You're good, right? Well, it's interesting because I think that it sort of acknowledged that the 7D has a better focusing system than some of the higher-end Canon cameras, for instance. Yeah. You know, uh, the 7D's got, got a stronger focus system than the 5D currently does. Um, you know, the 5D is, is seen as an extraordinarily high-quality camera in, in other aspects, so it's kind of a shame. And I think, I think you'll see a lower light sensitivity there. I expect it'll continue to be the leapfrog game. Uh, where Nikon and Canon are bouncing back and forth over each other all the time. Yeah, and that, I uh, love you know, that, by the way. I'm, yeah, I'm a big I mean, fan I think of that the, leapfrogging. The one thing that I expect to see from Canon uh, in in the uh, upcoming year, I hope to see maybe, is a uh, sort of micro four-thirds kind of thing. Uh, they call it evil, the electronic viewfinder, mm-hmm. interchangeable lens scenario, something that's a smaller camera. Uh, I don't. I don't know. I, maybe they won't do it. Maybe they will. I would be very curious to see that, though. Yeah, Steve, are you uh, you expecting anything different from the Nikon world? You know, well, we, yeah. of course we're going to see a D four eventually. But you know, if if and when that comes out, what it, what needs to be incorporated that's not in the D D three series? Yeah, it, it's really exciting because I think you know, comparable to the Canon rumors, the Nikon timeline is similar for the new uh, you know D three S replacement. You know. The D3S is an amazing camera as it is now. I mean, the low-light capability, the autofocus. One thing that I saw that Hasselblad came out with that I would love to see um, in, you know, as the next level of autofocus is um, when you lock in focus and then you recompose, well, the, the Hasselblad f- system um, knows where you've locked in focus and kind of senses that you're recomposing and maintains the focus and where that is particularly crucial, you know, when you're shooting, um, you know, very fast lenses, for example, and if you're going to recompose, any slight movement uh, puts in danger, you know, you losing that, that focus point. And if the camera's able to, and, and why not with all the technology that's available, to be able to know where that focus point is, sense a slight refocus movement, and maintain that focus point, I think that would be, you know, just fantastic. I mean, it's it's very exciting. I mean, Nikon's got this 51-point autofocus that's been proven in the last couple of years. Obviously, you know, it's going to get better. At least they're going to hope to make it better. So uh, hard to know, but but really exciting to to think that next year. I, I think that's a yeah. I think it's a great point, Steve. That it's there. There's so much stuff out there. There's so much technology that is technically doable. And I know that it's not easy to just throw new features into cameras, but there's so many. There's a lot of things that are very obvious uh, that the photographers want that I don't think would be that hard to put into the cameras. And it just feels like really these these manufacturers are a little bit behind the curve in terms of what can be done versus what they are doing. Uh, and that example you just gave is a perfect one. Yeah. Well, they're conservative. You know, they're they're and Canon is probably. As conservative as anyone right now, and and then they have a long uh, roadmap. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it does feel like it should be farther along in certain areas. Yeah. Okay, let's take a quick break from the show to listen to an interview I recorded with Zach Prez about search engine optimization for photographers. All right, we've got a bit of a treat for you guys right now. I'm here with Mr. Zach Prez. He's an internet marketing expert that has made his name on the web by helping folks basically optimize their presences online to 
make their sites a little bit more uh, visible to Google and thus the rest of the world. So Zach has agreed to come on and, and talk to us about how all that stuff works and you know what's metadata, how does Flash work into all this stuff, what's a keyword, do, should photographers even care about this, what are the tools that photographers should be using, etc. So this is, you're going to want to re-listen to this episode several times because these are, these are golden tips that Zach has agreed to come on and, and share with her This Week in Photo audience. So Zach, welcome to This Week in Photo. Thanks, Frederick. I'm really excited and can't wait to talk about this stuff. Yeah, it's great. So let's let's start with a little background. Um, how did you get into search engine optimization or SEO as they call it? Well, I've been doing web marketing for about 10 years and that's been in um, big business full-time job type stuff and also consulting a lot of people on the side. And Search engine optimization has always been a big part of that because in web marketing, the whole goal is to get more people to your site. And what better way than through Google, who has the most connections of any organization in the world, right? So um, a couple of years ago, I started focusing specifically on photographers when I had a friend who was starting a photography business, brand new to the area, didn't know anybody. She said, can you help share with me how I can go about getting in Google? And through some conversations, I was able to help her rank for pretty much everything she wanted to rank for in her niche and in her city. Um, and she said, this is really valuable stuff. It's changed my business. It's made me an extremely popular photographer in my area. Can you document how to do that? Um, and through that documentation in a couple of ebooks that I've written and some trainings and workshops, I've gotten to know the photographer audience a lot better and um, focus in to start writing things and helping photographers specifically, which can be very different than optimizing for a lot of other types of businesses. Yeah. So it's been about two years um, focused on photographers now. So Zach, let's just, you know, for the folks who may not understand the importance of this stuff, a lot of people think, hey, you know, it's Google. Google is this giant, massive spider machine that crawls the web and finds everything that shows up so that people can just go to Google.com, type in something, and it shows up at the top. You know, so why should I even bother with doing anything special to my blog? Because Google's going to find it anyway, right? So it's, why, why would they need the you know, SEO help in order to help Google see it if Google's going to see their site anyway? That's a great question. Um, the first is to understand kind of the power of what search engines can do for you. Uh, I think a lot of photographers are used to traditional marketing where you've got a yellow page ad or an event table um, or a banner ad on another site. And you're hoping that somebody sees that ad and it triggers something to where they want to go check you out. That's very um, much of a push marketing strategy where you're trying to push your brand onto them. SEO is more of a pull strategy where people are out searching to buy a product and they might not type something into Google like, I want to hire a photographer, but if they're looking for uh, sample photographs from a particular wedding venue, this is somebody who is very interested in purchasing. So the goal is to get in front of people that want to hear about your products or services. And when you do that, you can reach a huge volume of people. So I guess that's the first point is 
wanting to rank and search and understanding how big of a world that can be, yeah. how much how much business you can grow. And the second thing is, uh, Google may know about your site, so it has found you and indexed you. If you type the right thing, like your name, you might be able to rank for your name. But Google doesn't know what your site's about unless you tell it. And there's certain ways to do that, and I'm guessing you'll ask me what those ways are. Yes, I will. <laughs> I will. And the other is uh, there's a lot of sites out there um, that are trying to do the same thing. So how does Google know which one to rank first? We could talk about that too. Yeah. Well, before we go into that, so you, another another question that pops up is this is a relatively big planet, tiny when you look at you know. The, the the universe but you know the planet itself is gigantic and there's lots of people on it all over the place photographers most photographers you know say you're a wedding shooter you're you're unless you're you know a destination photographer well you'll 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 get on a plane and travel but most photographers markets are confined to a specific geographic location like you know, Catherine Hall may be a specialist up in Napa, whereas Dane Sanders may cover Southern California and, you know, on and on. So if if you, you know, you don't want people going into Google looking for, say, wedding photographer finding you and then trying to hire you if they're lo- really looking for somebody in Boca Raton. How do you how do you target people to a specific zip code? Right. You want to show up for locally based searches in most instances, unless you're a stock photographer or something like that. Yeah. So essentially, you want to tell Google that your site is about San Francisco photography. And when it goes to look for sites to potentially rank, then you will be in their consideration set. Okay, got it. And so you, want, you so you can control all that then. So you can control when, where, how, all that stuff for your particular niche or whatever audience you're trying to target. Yes, uh, and it's not too difficult. Um, now is probably a good time to talk generally about how search engines work. Would love it. Do it. So when you understand how Google looks at a site and what it does to rank sites, there's a lot of things you can take advantage of. So let's assume a potential client goes out and searches San Francisco photographer, uh, or more specifically, San Francisco wedding photographer. Most searches are kind of niche and location-based like that. So you've got a city, you've got a niche, and then you've got a word that's related to photography, in this case, photographer. Google's job is to find websites about San Francisco photographer, because if it returns results about LA photographers, Um, the people that searching aren't going to be very happy. And if that happens enough, they'll use a different search engine and Google is going to lose a lot of money. So the first thing, Google needs to find pages about San Francisco photographer. It's going to look at keywords on your site and it doesn't look everywhere. It looks at particular places, which I'll talk about in a minute. But it's looking for sites about San Francisco photographer and it may find 10, it may find a 100,000 sites that are all about San Francisco photographer. So how does it know which one to rank the best? Uh, I can make this analogy to social media pretty easily. If you go to Facebook or Twitter, you know who's popular by the number of friends they have or followers or connections. If Ashton Kutcher has 5 million Twitter followers and I, Zach Prez, have less than 5 million followers, 
I'm not as popular as Ashton Kutcher. Um, The same can be said about the quality of your connections. If the president is connected to me, I'm more popular, even if I only have 10 connections. So Google does this kind of popularity um, visual by looking at the links or references on other websites talking about you. So if you've got a hundred other websites that link back to your site, uh, that's telling Google a hundred other people found you popular enough to link to you for their audience. So a site with a lot of links is more popular and Google is going to assume the searcher wants to see uh, sites that have the most references. So so typically the most linked um, sites will rank the highest. So then photographers should, one of the takeaways should be, you know, work your network of friends and other photographers to link to you from their sites and vice versa. Now, does that, does Google condone that? I mean, is that, is that a good strategy to follow that, hey, I'm going to just go call up, you know, or I'm going to send out a tweet on, you know, This Week in Photo to everybody link over to thisweekinphoto.com right now to help me boost my rank. Would Google see that or would they, would they frown on that? Google's looking for natural indications of popularity. So if you got 100 links tomorrow and then no links for the rest of the year, a couple months from now, uh, Google is going to be less likely to rank you because it knows well, you were popular in December 2010, but it's questionable whether you're still popular because we haven't seen any links in a long time. Um, it can also look spammy if you've never had any links and you're a 10-year-old site and now all of a sudden you get 100 links in one day. So it can penalize for things like that, uh, but typically we're not talking about link volumes um, that would generate the spam trigger in Google. Uh, an example of what is a natural link, um, if you add your site to a web directory, let's say like Yelp or Merchant Circle or Super Pages. Sure, you can get a link from that directory, but that's not really an indication of your popularity. That wasn't another site saying, hey, this is a cool website, go check it out. That just means you were willing to do the work to get listed in that directory. Same is true of link trades. If you link to me and I link to you, Google knows there's a trade involved there, and it's not really saying how popular you are. So the best link would be a true reference from the middle of a paragraph on somebody else's site, and it would be on a page that didn't have 50 other links on it. Sort of contextual, just just keep it in there. And that's how Google AdWords works as well, right? I mean, or the, the ones that we see. I see these sites all the time that have you know ads by Google, and they, they're interspersed or inter twined with the text within the article to sort of get you to, you know, sort of break your reading stream to see the ad? Is that the way that your link should be, like, positioned? Or are you saying it should be contextual? Like, I'm writing about Zach Prez on a This Week in Photo post, or I'm writing about SEO that is not related to you, and then I say, and then there's this good SEO book, and I link to you directly from that sentence and then continue on my thought, right? Right. That would be the best link for me um, because you are actually referring to your audience. Uh, You're using quality words in the link that points to me um, because Google can tell a lot about a website by reading all of the links that point to it. For example, a bunch of bloggers, some A-list bloggers got together a few years ago 
and they were unhappy with what the White House was doing. So they all chose to write blog posts, and in the middle of the post, they had links that said miserable failure and hyperlinked that phrase to the White House. And what happened is so many links pointed to the White House that said miserable failure that Google assumed the White House was about miserable failure. And if you Googled miserable failure, White House would be the first result listed there. That's awesome. So it's kind of a funny example of how um, powerful the text of a link can be because Google doesn't have too much else to go on. I mean, you can tell Google with keywords what your site is about, but it's more likely to trust the hundreds of other sites out there that are referring you. What are they calling you by? And that's more likely the accurate depiction of your site. Yeah. All right. Well, let's let's talk about that in, in looking down into sites. Like we're referring to blog posts and contextually linking to sites from there. What about flash sites? You know, we've got you know, lots of lots of beautiful looking websites out there that are based, you know, ninety percent or all, or some in some in some cases completely in Flash. Can Google see in those, and and how do those guys rank? Google has come a long way in its ability to read Flash, but it still does not compare at all. It's a one out of ten when you're competing against a full HTML site, and I'll tell you why that is. Um, to backtrack just a little bit, when Google goes and looks at a web page to see that it's about San Francisco wedding photographer, yeah. it starts up in the title. This is what shows at the very, very top part of the browser. Um, it reads the title of the page, and then it looks at the URL of the page. And just by those two things, you pretty much know what the page is going to be about. Um, there's only one title. There's only one URL. They're usually short, and they usually have keywords very relevant to the topic of the page. So between those two things, Google makes an assessment on what the page is about. Next, it's going to go into the page itself, and the higher on the page you've got keywords, the more important they are. So maybe if the first sentence, it talks about San Diego or San Francisco wedding photographer, um, that just helps clarify to Google, yes, this is a page about that. Then it's going to look at text behind the images because outside of the photography world, usually there's not very many images per page. Like I, when I'm writing blog posts, I struggle to get one image in there. Yeah. So Google is going to look at the text behind the image called alt text to figure out what that image is about. If you showed me a page with just images, I could tell you the topic of the page. Um, Google can't see an image like a human can, so it looks at the alt text. So in looking at the alt text and combining that with the title and maybe the first sentence, it's got a good understanding of the page. Um, the other point I'll make is if you've got less than 300 words on your page that, that Google can see, Google might hesitate in ranking that well because there's not a lot of substance to it. Now, certainly, there's pages with less than 300 words that are ranking fine, but if you want to give confidence to Google, you should always shoot for 300 words or more. So now let's take a look at a Flash site. Google can't see what's inside the Flash animation because there's nothing behind that code. It's really just a call to an animated image 
that says there's a bunch of stuff in here. It doesn't know what's in there. There's no HTML text it can read. Even with uh, shadow sites, um, there's a lot of Flash-based portfolio companies offering shadow sites. That's still not very effective. What's a, what's a shadow site? Just to, just to be clear. A shadow site is an HTML coded version of a splash or of a flash site. Oh, so okay. while the user sees flash, the search engine sees HTML. But those have very difficult times. Um, usually, a flash site has a lot of different pages all within one page. So if you click on the link for portfolio or galleries. The URL doesn't change. The title doesn't change. So Google thinks you're a one-page site. All it can read is the title, which says San Diego Wedding Photographer, and there's no text on the page. Now, if I'm a searcher, and I've got the choice of picking from uh, what appears to be no content on the page and another site that has 300 words, and it's got embedded images, and we know what those images are about, a HTML site will outrank Flash if everything else is equal. Got it. All right. So let we we've talked a lot about Google, right? But there's other search engines out there. Um, you know, like Yahoo, Bing, which I guess Microsoft is powering Yahoo's search results now. So maybe it's the same thing, or is it? What should are there different things that photographers need to be cognizant of when optimizing their site so that it shows up better in one search engine over the other, or is it all the same? For all intents and purposes, I would say it's all the same. There are minor differences, uh, and that's why you could search the same phrase in multiple engines and get different results. But Google has consistently had sixty percent or more market share. If you were to look at your analytics, your web stats, you would see all of your search traffic is coming from Google, especially in the U.S. Um, that's what people tend to use. So if you focus on ranking for Google, which is the most difficult engine to rank in, um, the other ones being, um, which is pretty much the only other player right now because of that Yahoo uh, network, Yeah. Um, then you're, you should rank equally well in those sites. Uh, and even if you didn't, um, there's not enough volume to worry about it. So for my sites personally, I only focus on Google and only look at my Google rank. Okay, so here, here's a kind of a fundamental question. You're a photographer who's hearing this and they decide, you know what, I'm gonna, I've had a flash site for three years now or whatever and uh, it's time for me to to get serious about this and and look at Google as a major major traffic driver and fundamental in the success of my company. Um, what should I do now? I mean, you know, they're on Flash now and they want to move into something else. What should they do? Well, the thing is, is that a lot of people um, still like Flash, and I'm, I'm talking about potential clients. Mm-hmm. It's a it's a nice way to view a portfolio. Uh, you can listen to music while you're watching it, you know, whatever. Um, so some people might convert to a sale for you simply because you've got a nice professional animated slideshow gallery. So there's still benefit to Flash, just not from a search engine perspective. So what I've seen done a lot of times, and this works very well, is you'll put an HTML splash page, which is really just an introductory page to your website, put that in front of the flash. 
So when Google gets to your home page, it can read it. Uh, users on mobile phones can read it. And everybody can see, okay, this is what this uh, website is about. Um, and then you can have your flash site behind that, or you can have um, a blog attached to your flash site as well. Um, because blogs are HTML based and that allows Google to read it. So if you do have a flash site, I wouldn't get discouraged because there's ways to attach HTML pages or sites to that, either with a splash page or a blog. And the other thing is, um, remember the importance of popularity. There's plenty of flash sites ranking well because they've got a whole lot of links coming into them and Google sees them as popular even though it doesn't have a high confidence of what text is on that page. It's just an uphill battle to do that because getting links is the most difficult part of search engine optimization. All right. So then, so that's, okay, they make that, that choice to move over. Then just to put a finer point on it, Am I going to jump into, say, a Squarespace site? Should I code a site up myself using, you know, some web authoring tool? Should I use WordPress? You know, what, what's what's your what's your suggestion or your recommendation? Even the best developers uh, haven't um, don't know exactly uh, how to code for search engine optimization, um, but a site like WordPress, a blog platform. Um, is developed by thousands of developers, um, and it is, I guess, constructed the best from a code perspective for search. Um, so I would definitely steer clear of designing anything yourself. Um, not only would that take a lot longer, but it's not going to be structured in a way that a search engine can read it. Uh, WordPress is the best for that. WordPress.org, that is. This yeah. would be a site or a blog that you host yourself. And um, it's got all kinds of SEO bells and whistles, um, like plugins that you can just bolt on to your site with a click of a button. Um, they can do some great SEO things for you. So either I would go uh, straight to a blog, and even my websites are blogs, but they look kind of like websites. Uh, a user's not going to know the difference. Or you can go with an HTML-based um, gallery site that's not Flash. And, and you could always have both and link them all together through a splash page. Or you've got your Flash site that's on your business card and your HTML site who's got an intent of ranking in search engines. All right, so then let's let's talk tactics a little. So you're a photographer, presumably you're on Twitter, Facebook, and that sort of thing. Are there any things that photographers can do, you know, other than, hey, I wrote a blog post, here's a tweet with a link to it. Um, what What are best practices on that side to maximize your social media footprint with the with the ultimate goal of of you know doing the right thing with regard to your blog well there's two things one is uh, on the search engine side if you want to rank a blog post in search you have to think about what a user would type to find that post a lot of photographers will just put san francisco wedding photographer at the end of their blog post title but really, the searcher is probably looking for something very specific, like sample photo galleries from 
the Ritz-Carlton Hotel in San Francisco. Mm -hmm. So if you create a blog post about photo galleries at the Ritz-Carlton, you'll have a much easier chance of ranking for that than something general like San Francisco Wedding Photographer. That's right. So showing up in search is one thing. Uh, as you post um, to your wall or you tweet about that blog, really that's reaching the people that are already following you. So one thing is how can you make a push to get more people to follow you in those social networks? Because when you add a new blog post, nobody knows about it unless you send them an email or they stumble upon your site which is never as frequently as you want it to be. Yet, if they're following you in social media, they're seeing this as it comes through. So a couple quick ways you could do that are to take your email list. And in Facebook, uh, if you don't have a fan page and want them to connect with you um, as a friend, you can upload that entire contact list and it will tell you which of those people have Facebook um, accounts and you can send them a friend request uh, all in about a minute. Wow, um, so I didn't know you could do that, really. Yes, I just wrote an article on this. In fact, I launched a new site this week, photographywebmarketing.com, and there's an article about that. That's cool. Photography web marketing. Good segue. What is that site all about, and why did you launch it? I've been known uh, quite a bit in photography circles for search engine optimization stuff, um, but really, I've I've done a whole lot of internet marketing work, and so I wanted to create a site that was more than just search engines. For example, social media, email marketing, web design, and analytics are all important pieces uh, because even if you rank in search, that doesn't mean people are going to hire you. So yeah. that site kind of fills the rest of the online gap, so photographies can get more business from their search results. Yeah. Yeah. That's awesome. So, and is that live now? Yes. Yeah. What I have, I'm not selling anything through it, um, but I do have an email class uh, and email classes are quite the rage right now because it enables somebody to come to my site and get um, one tip per week for let's say five weeks. And by the end of that five weeks, I've emailed them uh, an entire idea of web marketing and all the different things you can do. So very quickly, they can learn about what the different options are um, through email without having to see if I posted a new blog. Uh, and then they can choose which ones they want to dive into more, whether it's SEO or email marketing or social media, for example. That's wonderful. That's really cool. That's, thanks for doing that. I think that's, that's needed in the industry right now. So I, I predict that will be very popular. Thanks. I hope so. You also um, are the author, and one of the ways we connected um, was because you are the author of a book called, or an e-book called The Photographer's SEO Book, right? So you literally wrote the book for for photographers (laughs) in terms of getting ranked in Google and thus making more money and getting more clients. So talk a little about what what that, you know, not to make this, this is not a commercial. So I, you know, so just tell me what that book is about, what it's, who it's for and all that. In consulting a lot of photographers, I found myself saying the same things, which is what we're talking about now. It's how do search engines work, how do you find keywords, how do you get links, 
um, where do you put keywords um, on your page, that kind of stuff. So I put it all together in a guide. It's about 40 pages and just walks any photographer website through that process. Oh, that's very cool. And how much does it cost? The last shoe must drop? <laughs> <laughs> well, the, the photographer's SEO book, which is centered around photography websites, is about 40 bucks. It's $39. I wrote a second ebook specific to blogs. This is how to optimize a blog, um, which is a different than a website. Um, that's $49. Um, but I do have a special for TWIP listeners, um, oh. good, good through the end of the year, um, which would get them 50% off if they buy both books together or if they buy my uh, recorded training, which is uh, me speaking about a lot of these topics, and then they also get the eBooks with that. So if you take advantage of that and go to photographers-seo.com, and type in TWIP as your discount code, then you could get both eBooks for, uh, how much is it? I think thirty seven fifty, which is cheaper than one book. So yeah. it's a real great way for people to get a head start in SEO. And, cr- it, and crush their competition, right? That's always the goal, huh? <laughs> <laughs> the first thing I hear in, in consulting calls is, uh, well, my competitor is this. Let's go look at their site and tell me what they're doing right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah I hear that all the time as well. That's awesome. So, uh, yeah, we'll definitely link to uh, we'll link over to that in the show notes to make it easy for people to to just hop right over there and grab that. So, that's good. Um, so, what's what's up next for Zach Prez? What's uh, what's next on your radar? Um, I'm expanding on SEO with the photography web marketing site. Um, I'm also getting together with Jack Hollingsworth, who's pretty big in the social space, and uh, we're putting together some pretty amazing things on social media for photographers. Uh, I'm not quite ready to talk about what that is yet, but um, in early 2011, you'll start to see that being promoted. Very cool. When when you're ready to talk about it, will you come back on the show and tell us what it is? Absolutely. Sounds like fun. All right. Well, very cool. Well, Zach, thank you for for taking time out of your Saturday to to chat with me about SEO. And I'm, I'm sure a lot of photographers uh, that are listening to this that have websites up um, have gotten a lot out of it, and you know, will uh, probably re-listen to this episode again to to kind of distill out the tips that you were throwing out there. So we really appreciate it. No problem. I appreciate you having me. You're welcome. Thanks a lot, Zach. That was Zach Prez, author of The Photographer's SEO Book. You can find out more about search engine optimization for photographers and Zach at fvj.me slash photo SEO. That's fvj.me slash photo SEO. Now, back to the show. All right, guys, let's let's move on. Um, it's time for some listener Q&A. Every week, our producers scour the TWIP forums at thisweekinphoto.com forward slash forum to find the best questions for us to answer on the show. And uh, we've got some good questions in here. Question number one, I'm going to throw over to you, Derek. It's about uh, memory cards. You want to take that? Sure, sure. Uh, this is from uh, Northwest Florida and uh, just got a new digital camera. And thus far, I've been making do with SD cards I already had, but his new camera will now shoot HD video. So this is a scenario that I think you know a lot of people are are seeing, and I expect that certain new SD cards will record video better than the old cards. 
Aside from the obvious difference, such as record speed, are there any real advantages to high-end cards? Because you know they do they do cost more, yeah. and uh, so yeah, this is this is a question that that comes up a lot, and, and probably all all four of us uh, have opinions on this. But you know what it comes down to is it worth worth it to pay more for the higher-end cards for uh, example, a SanDisk Extreme card versus, uh, uh, I, not to pick on anyone, but maybe a Kingston, uh, you know, standard card. And I think the first thing you do want to look at is to make sure that the specs of your card match up with the specs of the camera that's going to be in. That is important, and uh, camera manufacturers do do publish that. So you want to you want to make sure that you don't have any uh, dropped uh, frames or anything like that when you're shooting video. So. Most of the time, you're going to want, you know, class six or at least class four on those cards. But then beyond that, I think it's more than of a durability issue. And uh, the, for example, the Sandisk cards, the extremes, uh, can take more abuse than uh, maybe uh, a card that that costs less. In in some ways, it does sort of a little bit parallel our lens discussion. Whereas you can get, I think, good results from both. But it depends on how you're using the cards. And if you think you're going to be rough on them or the potential be rough on them, it's probably a good idea to have a couple high-end cards. And then you can maybe augment you know, your collection with uh, you know, some more mid-range price stuff. Yeah. Can I chime in just with uh, Yes, please. Absolutely. Um, yeah, since I, I you know, hooked up with SanDisk on their Extreme team, they've kind of brainwashed me, and I've learned a lot about these cards. And it's interesting because one of the things I had thought was with video, I might need faster cards. But that's actually not really true because video is, is actually a steady stream of smaller files where you'll see performance jumps with the really fast cards or if you're shooting big files like, like RAW or RAW plus JPEG that's when you'll notice a big difference. So it's not so much with video like this, like um, this uh, TWIP uh, listener is asking, uh, the, the speed of the card, it's, it's probably more of a quantity. You want a bigger card to be able to hold all that uh, video information uh, that you have. And the other thing, you know, in my experience, and, and now that I've sort of, you know, looked into it further, um, literally the card is probably one of the strongest links in the digital chain. I don't know if you guys have ever kept a card in your pants and put it through the washer and dryer. I haven't, but I've heard that you know nine times out of ten, uh, it'll it'll come out just fine. It'll survive. These things really do take a lot of abuse, and that's where you'll notice the difference between the brand name cards, you know, like a Sandisk, versus the 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 other names because the other names buy the components, um, you know, kind of at the, at the best prices and put them together, whereas the big name manufacturers will. Uh, make all the parts, and they make them all fit together. And in the end, if you have the cheapest card, the the same image will will look the same because it's all just you know ones and zeros. But as Derek mentioned, it's it's a reliability issue. So you want to you know this is the most important thing. You could replace everything except what you've got on that card. So you want to make sure that uh, you know you've got a good chance that you're going to get that information off the card. Yep. All right, I want to throw question number two over to Mr. Ron Brinkman. This is a question question that comes to us from Nuremberg, Germany. Ron, you want to take this one? Yes, from uh, listener Henrik, 
Question about manual white balance. Uh, when shooting JPEG, I often use the manual white balance, which works fine according to the manual. You need not think about how the reference shot was made, except one should not use the monochrome setting, which I think is quite obvious. Still, I wonder if this is all you need to consider, or is it okay to shoot a JPEG reference picture, as this will be corrected by the white balance setting at the time of the shot. I think the concern is that if you shoot JPEG as your reference, and just really quickly explain how these cameras do this, you... You can shoot a photo of something that's supposed to be uh, a neutral color, you know, shoot a gray card or something, and then use that as your reference photo for the white balance. And you shoot that neutral color in the lighting scenario that you're then going to be taking the rest of your photos in. And so what it does is it lets the camera look at that photo that you just shot and say, this should be gray, and it'll adjust the color that it's applying to the other images uh, in the same way that it uh, added the the color adjustment to that photo to get it to be a neutral gray, and I think the concern that Henrik is is voicing here is that if you're already dialing in some other white balance adjustment on top of what you're shooting, uh, is that going to throw things off? And it shouldn't because really what the uh, the camera is doing is kind of looking at the original data prior to any color correction that's applied and using that to determine. What's the, what's the color balance that it needs to apply to the rest of it. So it does make sense. If you're going to be shooting JPEG, shoot a quick reference photo of a gray card. Or what I tend to do is I just have a gray lens cloth that I always carry around with me and I just toss it into you know, toss it on the ground or toss it onto the table and shoot that real quick before That's I shoot everything tip. else. Great tip. Um, yeah, it's really handy. It's much easier than carrying a card around. And the thing is, you know, you can get really anal retentive about getting perfect gray, but if you don't even have a gray card with you or a lens cloth with you, you, know, you can use a piece of white paper and it's going to get you pretty close. Uh, the other obvious thing to say about this is that if you're shooting raw, it, it almost becomes a non-issue because then you can always color correct it after the fact and have the latitude to do it. Uh, you can color correct JPEGs after the fact in the same way. It's just that if you're doing anything that's very extreme, you're going to start to see artifacts showing up. Your colors are going to bend a little bit. You may see banding. So as, as always, our recommendation really is you should just shoot raw. But if you are shooting JPEG, shooting a properly white-balanced JPEG is going to be a, a critical thing to do. Yeah. All right. Uh, let's move on to question number three. Uh, Derek, if you don't mind, I'd like to throw this one back to you as well. Do you want to take it? Yeah. The, this is... Uh... <laughs> Uh, question number three is from way up north, which I love that. He lives in uh, Alaska. And uh, I don't live in the coldest part of the state. <laughs> but he can see Russia from where he's standing, Ooh. I bet. <laughs> I had to throw that in there. Sorry. Right. Sorry. <laughs> but I do uh, have to uh, deal with extreme temperatures on a regular basis. Actually, and I want Steve to chime in on this, too. I, got, I have one tip, but you know, Steve's world is colder than my world uh, right now. So just start shooting with the Canon 60D, and I've always been pleased with the DSLR batteries, the way they handle the cold and maintain their charge. I'm a computer tech by day and have a tendency. Uh, so he's worried about the moisture building up when he brings the camera in out of the cold. Uh, not only on uh, you know fogging up the lens, but actually on condensation forming on the internal components. So beyond the obvious need uh, to allow equipment to adjust the temps, are there any suggestions that we have? And uh, th- this is actually a you know something to con- to think about. This is a good question. And one thing that I do, and actually I just did a post on this the other day, is I, I carry uh, Ziploc bags in my inside my low pro bags. And the reason why I do that is that when I'm in really cold temps and I know I'm going to come in somewhere warm, like a house or something, I put the camera bag in the Ziploc bag before I come in while it's in the cold, zip it up, 
and then uh, I let the camera warm up uh, inside that inside that bag so that if any uh, moisture from condensation forms, it will form outside of the outside of the camera, and uh, that helps. But Steve, uh, what do you do? No, I mean that's uh, that's kind of the the big tip. Uh, you know, I lived in Edmonton for ten years, and you know, it gets minus forty for a couple weeks at a time, and round tires become square. You got to leave your car on, or else you'll never start it. I mean, weird things start to happen in the cold. And like you said, Derek, if you, um, in theory, you know, seal your camera in a, in a plastic bag, condensation will form outside the bag and not inside. Uh, maybe shortening the length of time you'll have to stay. When we used to cover the playoffs, uh, when the Edmonton Oilers were doing really well, uh, we would make sure we would have a camera in the dressing room so it's already kind of warmed up because even going from the ice surface to the dressing room with all the body heat, uh, you wouldn't be able to shoot because your camera's fogged up. Oh, but if you have a camera a already, if I love that, yeah, already ready and, and at that room temperature, you'll be able to shoot. But uh, yeah. you know, keep your camera under your coat. Uh, they do make external batteries, and most you know you would never investigate this because you'll never need it. But they uh, often have made external batteries that plug into your camera that you can keep in your pocket, um, and and just you know it's just to to keep the the battery life going because as we know. Uh, the the days of the mechanical camera are pretty well gone, so you need juice to to do anything. So it's become more important in those cold climates. I have an, uh, a a contacts uh, body that I keep just mainly for that reason because it has that external battery uh, setup, which is is pretty cool. Awesome. Yeah. All right, guys, let's move on. We are we're at the picks picks of the week segment. This is where each guest gives their pick, and this can be software hardware, gear, workshop, whatever, long as it's photography-related. And I want to start with Ron Brinkman. Ron, what's your pick of the week? Sure. I, it, it seems like maybe this has been mentioned before, but I didn't use it, use the service, and, and now I do. So uh, for business cards, there's a company called Moo, M-O-O, it's Moo.com, that I think is a really great uh, service for photographers. I just ordered a whole bunch of business cards. And the thing that makes them special is that you can upload uh, kind of as many photos as you want for your set of business cards that you order. So you can get a, a, a group of business cards that have different photos on the back, sort of a, in a rotating set, if you will, uh, and have a wide variety of things. And it's just really fun whenever somebody asks for a card. You can kind of pull out a stack of four or five of them and kind of fan them out and let people see a few different photos to choose from. I think it makes it a little more memorable. It's a good way to show off your photography. Uh, and, you know, they're reasonably cheap. They have uh, full-size cards and, and these little mini cards that are sort of half-height cards. And you get like 100 cards for 20 bucks. Um, there are free places that will give you business cards, but they tend to print their logo on it. And I think if you want professional-looking cards, uh, and Moo has just a great, easy-to-use website. It's very simple to upload and crop and position your photos. Uh, I, I really recommend it. I really like it. I just ordered my second batch. Yeah, Moo's cool. You can have a different photo on every single card yeah. and, and let people pick which card they want. And they also, I think they operate with SmugMug and Flickr and you know a bunch of other yep. sites where you can just yep. suck in your images directly from there and you know, a couple clicks and you got a stack of business cards that are it's like a little gallery or a little miniature portfolio, right? Yep, absolutely. Very cool. All right, um, Mr. Steve Simon, what's your pick of the week? Well, I recently had to get a bunch of photos quickly made, and uh, my pick of the week is CostcoPhotoCenter.com because I uploaded to their website, and I had 20 
12 by 18 prints made, and I didn't really have time for a lot of color correction, etc. Uh, $2.99 for a 12 by 18. Once uploaded, uh, you can pick them up at your Costco warehouse of choice in an hour, which to me was just kind of mind-boggling. So I, I basically ordered 20 12 by 18s for $2.99 each. I went down to the Costco in downtown Manhattan. We even have one in Manhattan now. Uh, in, in an hour, they were ready, and they looked fantastic. I, I have to say, I was really surprised. I know there's a lot of great resources out there, but um, I, I, I wonder if they can you know, beat the price and convenience and the quality of this. It's just very, very convenient. So I, I was thrilled. Three bucks for a 12 by 18. Um, fantastic. That's pretty good. I, last time I checked, um, Costco also, if you go to their site, you can download profiles. Right yes, for, the, for their yes, printers, right. so that you can color, you can make sure that your color is nailed when you send the the final JPEG off to them. That's absolutely. So there's absolutely no trouble in terms of matching uh, what you see and what you get. So yeah, it's 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 really good. Very cool. All right, Derek Story, what's your pick of the week? Well, I, you know, we're, I guess we're all in sort of an output mode this week because uh, <laughs> <laughs> mine is except two. me, mine's input. So <laughs> okay, well, all right. So there you go. So you can balance this out, Frederick. Yeah. But uh, I'm going to talk about uh, sizzle picks this week, and there's something that I've been we've been working with in you know on, over on my site on the digital story, and a lot of listeners have have tried this, and and I've gotten just like fantastic feedback on this. So, and I have some myself. So. But okay, you know, I, I I think I feel pretty comfortable recommending these guys right now. And what they do is they 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 start with a polished piece of aluminum, and then uh, they they actually put like a substrate over the aluminum, and then they fuse dyes into the substrate, and then they put a UV coating on top of this. And the end result is that your shot when you when you send it to them and you get it back. Uh, printed, uh, you know, using this system, it it's amazing. It uh, has uh, this sort of uh, this luster and this depth that um, that you really uh, that I haven't seen on paper anyway. And then uh, the things like fairly indestructible too. For instance, if you want to hang something in the bathroom, if you want to have images in the bathroom where you know uh, showers are all steamy and everything all the time you can put these things in and and just like wipe them off with a with a soft cloth and they stay looking great and it's pretty amazing and uh i a lot of people have been trying them for gifts lately and and uh i just have gotten a, a ton of great feedback uh 99 bucks, I think, for 11 by 14, and it has the mounting on it, so you just hang it up the way you get it. I want some of those. I'm ordering some. That's, that's yeah. amazing. Is that the largest they go, 11 by 14? Oh, no. Oh, no. They, in fact, they just, I think they just got a new machine, so now they can go, you know, uh, like four feet or something. Uh, that's wow. what I want. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I want to do a matrix, like four prints that are large and just, yeah. You know, that that sounds stunning. Wow. Yeah, it, it it really is. I did uh, one of the shots from the Forbidden City uh, that I've always liked anyway, and said, "Boy, you know, it has a lot of depth and so forth." And I want to see. And uh, people come over to the studio, and they, they you can just see them sort of walk toward that shot. You know, it's like a magnet. Wow, that's amazing. All right, uh, my pick of the week, like I mentioned earlier in the show, is uh, kind of targeted at Derek and um, Steve Simon, because you guys are doing workshops, and it's input. So I just got this thing in the mail that I ordered, I don't know, like three months ago from Square, 
Um, this, their URL is squareup.com. And essentially, it's a it's an iPhone app that you install. You sign up for their service, get approved. And then you stick this thing into the into the uh, uh, headphone jack on the top of your, your device. And you can, from that point forward, take credit cards from anyone. So, Derek, you, you can put this thing on your iPhone, go do your workshop and say, okay, everyone, you know, here, whatever you're charging, you just swipe it right on the spot and take credit cards right there or punch the number in directly on your phone. It'll do the authorization and deposit the money directly into your account right there. So from wherever you are, Steve, you could be doing your workshops and say, okay, I'm going to, you know, have an assistant standing at the front door taking money as, you know, as they come in and sit down and just all they have is your iPhone or an iPhone or an iPad and swipe and process done, you know, and it's as simple as that. It's pretty amazing. It is have you have you been able to use it yet? I did. I got it. I got the thing yesterday, um, day before yesterday it came in, uh, and I plugged it in. I just did a test. You know, I just charged. You know, I paid myself five bucks, and it went through seamlessly. And it's <laughs> uh, it, you look at the videos on their site. It works just like that. It's it's almost revolutionary because I was like, okay, you know, I'm going to pay myself five bucks. You swipe it. You digitally sign the you know the the credit card you know to authorize with your finger. And then you the you know as the person is signing the next screen that comes up is they can either choose to be sent a text message with their receipt or emailed. If you choose email, it'll send a a really cool looking email with your photo or your business logo, how much they were charged, a pin on a Google map where the charge <laughs> occurred. You wow. know, it's just insane. You know, you can even take a picture of the person that when you're when you're t- doing the charge they can remember what they bought you know it's it's insane wow. i think it's the future honestly it's really yeah. incredible oh man i want to go sell something now yeah me too <laughs> i gotta go like i just pulled out i'm not even kidding i pulled out all this old stuff that i have like i have a couple of old kindles and some drobos and me get rid of i'm like i'm gonna sell them with square i'm just gonna get rid of them. <laughs> just gonna get rid of them. <laughs> so so definitely right, check that out just don't sell those Sigma lenses you have there. I am not <laughs> selling the Sigma lens. Hey, it is Christmas time. Isn't it? <laughs> um, all right, guys, that's it. We are we are at the end of the show. Steve Simon, where can folks go to find you? Well, I've just been um, getting involved with uh, these workshops with Nikonians, so they can find these workshops at nikoniansacademy.com. Uh, Going to be in San Francisco the 29th and 30th. And then uh, Vancouver, February 24, 27, Toronto, March 17 to 21. Awesome. And uh, be sure to send those over to us, Steve, so we can make sure those are in the in the show notes. And we also have a calendar on This Week in Photo that we're going to start populating in 2011 with the events that the different hosts are doing. So, Derek, um, Steve, you know, as you know what your schedules for your workshops are, you can just hand those over and we'll make sure those are posted so folks can find out what you're up to. Oh, awesome. That. Speaking of Derek, where are you at online, sir? So uh, go to thedigitalstory.com, and uh, that's uh, everything runs through there. And I still, I still have some openings in my signature workshops for uh, 2011. <laughs> so uh, if, uh, if you're interested in that, uh, just send me an uh, email, Derek at thedigitalstory.com, D-E-R-R-I-C-K. Wonderful. All right, Mr. Ron Brinkman, where are you at on the ethers? Uh, easiest thing is just on Twitter, Ron Brinkman, R-O-N-B-R-I-N-K-M-A-N-N. All right, excellent. And if you want to keep up with everything in the TWIP universe, you can just head over to thisweekinphoto.com. There you'll find links to our Facebook fan page, our Twitter account, 
and more. And if you're looking for me, Frederick Van Johnson, you can just check out my blog at frederickvan.com or follow me on Twitter at twitter.com forward slash Frederick Van. And with that, it is time to take that lens cap off. This Week in Photo is a Pixelcore.tv production produced by Suzanne Llewellyn with technical producers John Riley and Alutha Jamakar. <laughs>